Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. How many of you have ever had a what now moment? Like everything falls apart and you're going, what now? We had one of those moments when we were living in Oregon. We were flying to Minnesota for vacation, and because it was cheaper, we decided to fly out of Portland, a little over a two-hour drive down I-5. Now, if you've been out there because of the mountains, you know that if there's an accident on I-5, there's nothing you can do to get around it. It's just you're stuck. So we gave ourselves an extra 90 minutes just in case to get to the airport. Ten minutes into the drive, we got caught in a backup for an accident, and we lost 15 minutes. A few minutes later, we got ran into another accident on I-5 and lost another 20 minutes. But we still weren't sweating it. We had plenty of time. You know, we're, we're good. Three more accidents later, including an entire semi-load of hay bales dumped all over the freeway. And our two-hour trip turned into over five hours when we missed our plane. And on top of that, our car stopped working as we rolled into the driveway, not into the parking spot, but into the driveway of the parking place that we were going to park at at the airport. With three little kids at the time, no vehicle, uh, having missed our flights, unsure whether we're going to have to pay full price to buy new tickets, where we were going to sleep that night since no more flights were going out that day, and where did we get our car towed to, and what garage will fix it, and what's wrong with the car? It was one of those ultimate, <laughs> what now moments? Can anything else go wrong? What do we need to do now to get out of this bad situation? Happy vacation. It actually turned out really well, and God answered some prayers amazingly in the next 24 hours. But it leads us to the point that Paul is making in Romans, a book many theologians consider maybe the most important book in the Bible. It's in the first two chapters where we've spent the last three weeks, Paul has brought us to a what-now moment today. Paul has been a genius at developing in his, his argument that all of the human race is condemned and will never meet the standards of God's law, much less our own standards for what we know is right and wrong. Paul showed us the core of every sin is the same. It's rejecting God. Though our sins may look different from others, we all choose to reject God in various ways in our lives. Romans 1 and 2 leaves us feeling desperate, overwhelmed bringing us to a what-now moment. Paul has created such an airtight argument that the, that the bad situation we're in as humanity, there is nothing we can do to control that and get ourselves out of this one. There is no way you can be good enough. And he kind of summarizes that statement in Romans 3 when he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Our sin is so embedded in us. It would be like you trying to jump across the Grand Canyon in your own might. Imagine standing at the narrowest point of the Grand Canyon, just a mere 10 miles wide. So let's say we've got a 5'11", 58-year-old with a little bit of a pudgy belly who's trying to come back from the worst physical shape of his life. Not that we know anybody like that stands on the precipice and attempts, attempts the jump, and, and he jumps three feet. What happens? He crashes and dies. 
The next guy is a little more fit. He's been working out. He's pumped. He's drinking Red Bull. He's got Rocky playing in his earbuds. And he runs and he jumps 10 feet. And he crashes and dies on the rocks. He looks slightly better doing it, but he still crashes and dies. Finally, there's an Olympic athlete in top condition. He runs. He crushes it, jumping 30 feet. Nonetheless, he's still short of the 10 miles and crashes on the rocks. And he looks a lot better than the other two on it, but he's still dead. See, Paul shares in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some of us may jump a little further, but nobody can jump enough. We're in a desperate what now situation. So what's the answer? Well, Paul is getting ready to tell us bluntly and profoundly, and without overstating things, this may be the most important passage in Romans. And Actually, some scholars say it's the most important passage in the entire Bible that we're going to deal with today. Paul starts off with, but now. So buts are always important in the Bible. But now signals a dramatic shift contrasting how you and I are in an impossible situation, but now the divine creator of the universe is going to step in to our situation. So let's begin reading. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law of the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So what we're going to focus on today is this idea of justification. We're going to ask three questions. Why do we need justification? What is it? And how do we receive it? So why we need it first. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So this word righteousness, it's often viewed negatively like being self-righteous or arrogant. Yet righteousness is simply showing that you have done right things. In a way, it's a little bit like a resume that shows your righteousness, that validates your performance record so you can prove you are worthy of the new job you're applying for. We do this as well when we apply to colleges. Because of my grades and extracurricular activities and my ACT scores, I'm worthy of this school, so please accept me. And honestly, every religion in our world, in our culture, in every culture does this same thing with God. If there's a God, you show your moral performance record, and this is how you connect to God and how you get to heaven or find enlightenment or whatever they're trying to get you to. And yet Paul comes in this passage and gives an entirely different, absolutely unheard of approach to God and finding righteousness and justification, which in this text, the Greek words translated righteousness and justification are actually from the same root word. So he's actually doing something meaningful in that in in and of itself in the text. Instead of having this moral record where you show how you've met the standards of some kind of law or expectation, God has a gift of his perfect righteousness is what this passage is saying. He gives us his performance record and we can choose to accept his record, which if we do in the end, it ends our struggles for validating our worth. Justification makes the Christian gospel totally unique and the reverse of any religion or philosophy out there. 
Religion tells us I obey and therefore I'm accepted. And I think we know this is problematic, don't we? Because laws don't change our hearts. Laws just point out what is wrong in our hearts. But once the law is gone, we're going to kind of do whatever we want to do. Giving a list of laws won't change us like you commanding me to eat pecans isn't going to make me like them. Christianity instead is, I am accepted by God and therefore I obey. Now let's be clear. Whether you are a Jesus follower or not, we are all seeking justification in life. Everyone is seeking to justify themselves. A news article of Sidney Pollack illustrates this. The famous movie maker noted how right before he died in 2008, despite being sick, Pollock kept working even though his family begged him not to because the stress was shortening his life. To their pleas, Pollock responded that although the film process is grueling and wears him down, he couldn't justify his existence if he stopped. He explained it this way. He said, every time I finish a picture, I feel I've earned my stay another year or so. So what he's saying is, I need to do something to justify being here, that my life counts. A writer disappointed with his career was asking the questions, why am I here? What am I living for? And then he said one day, he said, I I look at my two little daughters and then I knew my existence is justified. Now, we don't know fully what he meant by that. Maybe he was just saying he really loves his daughters. However, a lot of parents do find validation for their existence in their kids. My life is worthwhile and acceptable and valid, we might think, because I'm a mother or a father and my children are doing well and they are successful. See, the concerning part about justifying your existence by having children is you can end up destroying them with the pressure to succeed in order for you to feel good about yourself. If they get in trouble or do poorly, it can devastate your identity. Their success becomes your success. It becomes about you feeling good about yourself and justifying your existence. See, at some point in our lives, we all wrestle with what makes me worthwhile. What justifies my existence. See, Paul is showing us a deeper fulfillment for our need for righteousness, for validation, for worth, for acceptance. And that is his idea here of justification. So next question, what is justification? Paul describes it in verse 24, and yet many in the church don't understand it. And not understanding this is like coming to an incredible feast at a palace, and there are beautiful chairs, rugs, and art on the walls, There's all this furniture, but when you arrive for the feast, there is no place at the table for you. Justification is your place at the table. Now, I've heard people say they're justified, and they back it up by saying, well, I'm forgiven. I know I'm forgiven. And that's true, but justification means infinitely more than that. Forgiveness means you're free free of the punishment, and you're free to go. Justification not only frees you from punishment, but it gives you a status with all kinds of rights and privileges. Instead of going, you are told to come. No need to avoid the one you harmed. You have a seat at the family table of the King of Kings. 
See, justification allows you to live life feeling confident in your right standing with God because you've been made holy. You've been covered by Jesus' righteousness. See, Tim Keller describes it this way. I think it's really helpful. He says, forgiveness is like getting pardoned pardoned so that you are out of jail and you don't have to be afraid of someone coming to arrest you and put you back in jail. However, justification is not just a pardon from jail. It's more like getting a Congressional Medal of Honor bestowed upon you so that everyone salutes you and so you now have access to circles and corridors of acclaim and honor. So how do we get this status? Text says in Romans, Paul, Paul actually says it a little more clear in first, Second Corinthians, so let's read it there. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus was treated as if he had done everything we had done. Justification means we understand we are now treated and seen by God as if we've done everything Jesus has done. Jesus gifts his righteousness to us as our righteousness. I get it. That's hard to believe. And I think, I think believing that and getting it deep down is one of the biggest, most important things we wrestle with every day in our growth in Christ. I hear this struggle with believing justification when someone talks about their salvation in this way, saying something like, well, I have to really give my life to Jesus and surrender to him. I have to be unconditionally committed to Jesus. I'm going to live for you and only you, and I need to get better at that. Yes, surrendering to Jesus is critical. Yes, wanting to be unconditionally committed to Jesus is so important. But can you hear in how we normally talk about that and and maybe even feel in yourself when you talk about that, how we're talking about trying to clean ourselves up first? How we're trying to make ourselves just a little bit more righteous before we get the seat at the table of God? Other ways we can try to clean ourselves up and lean on our own self-righteousness is through religious practices by getting baptized along or doing other sacraments like communion. These are good things. But they're not good when you do them to build your resume so that you can say, I'm right with God. See, it's critical for us to be really aware of how we try to make ourselves righteous, how we self-justify, how we make ourselves feel like we are loved and accepted by the way we self-justify instead of fully leaning into the perfect work of Jesus. However, you might say, well, and something Paul touches on earlier in Romans 2 and 3, basically if we're going to summarize some of what he says there, it's like he would say, well, if I believe salvation is absolutely free and I don't have to get my heart into a better state in order to receive it, then I have no incentive to live a good life. What you're saying when you think that is that you need the fear of punishment to keep you living a good life. And what that means is you're still trying to self-justify when you believe that. Whereas Romans 2 says, what we read last week, it says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. 
Again, we're not saying sins don't matter. They obviously do. They hurt us. They hurt others. They alienate us to God all too often. However, we know the Pharisees were very concerned about their sins, and they were also self-justifying legalistic people who were, according to Jesus, whitewashed tombs who were far from God. See, what makes you a Christian is not being stuck and feeling bad about your sins. Nor is it about you boasting about the things that justify your existence, the things that validate you, that make you feel worthy or good, such as helping people or doing a good job. Those are important. Those are good things. Paul says what makes you a Christian is first being aware of your false righteousness. You realize you can't save yourself. Your righteousness can't justify you. What makes you a Christian is not just trying harder, but realizing and accepting Jesus' free gift of justification and knowing that that is infinitely more than just a pardon. I heard the story of a man who was a Christian for three years before he really started to grasp this concept. And he said this, he said, my job is in an investment in wealth management. And the last year I lost an enormous amount of money and others in my field did not lose as much. I used to base my justification in my performance, he said, but now I can tell you that despite the incredible financial losses, I've never been happier. If this loss would have happened before I chose Jesus and understood his justification, I would have found the vodka bottle and driven myself right into the ground. See, that's knowing how Jesus is our justification, our righteousness, our value for living. Along with justification comes another benefit. In this text, it's called redemption. All of us are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So redemption means to buy something back, to take that which has been destroyed and restore it back to its original good. If you fall in hard times, you may hawk a ring at a, hawk a, ring at a pawn shop, and if you get enough money, you buy it back. You redeem it, Right? The Bible tells us sin puts us in bondage, but redemption means you're free from that bondage. Paul is using the idea here of a kinsman redeemer from ancient times when there was nothing like filing for bankruptcy. In the ancient world, when you had a debt and couldn't pay, you lost your freedom. And you had to work for the person you owed until you paid it off, even if it was the rest of your life. However, If there was a person related to you who was willing and able, they could pay your debts in order to free you. And this is what Jesus did for us. Justification is not as simple as saying, hey, I know you're a sinner, but you can go free. There's a cost to our sin. There's a debt that you could not pay. There's justice to be set right. Jesus was sent by the Father to be The redemption for your sins and my sins, all of our sins. He was your substitute for the debt you couldn't pay to take the punishment you deserve. Paul builds on the benefits Jesus gives by saying this. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, He had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. In his patience, he left things unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just 
and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So there's a lot in here. Here Paul describes the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. The word atonement is oftentimes in other translations translated propitiation. Most of us don't use propitiation in our everyday language at the dinner table, do we? It's an extremely important word, though, because it helps us see that when Jesus died for us, he took our place and justified us. Propitiation helps us deal with the need for justice and God's appropriate wrath and how justice was satisfied through the greatest act of love in all of history. Atonement and propitiation is referencing the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant when on the days of atonement, the high priest in the Old Testament would sacrifice for sins for the entire people of the Old Testament and they would atone for them, sanitize, wipe, clear the sins away. Now, it was also recognized it was impossible for the blood of animals to take away sin on a permanent basis. But God let this practice of sacrifice help show us how he hates sin because of how sin corrupts each person and damages the people who experience it. In order to do something about sin corrupting us, God had to do something. Jesus became the lamb who paid the full and just price for humanity's sin. What's remarkable is this atoning sacrifice was not made by any person, but by God himself, the very one that we had most offended. God stepped in. He initiated the sacrifice and provided the means for everyone to be reconciled to God himself. Now, some struggle with this need for our sins to be canceled or atoned for. Why couldn't God just cancel our sin without a sacrifice? If, God's love, if God loves us, why does he not just forgive us? Why all this blood shedding? One popular Christian songwriter today who has since become an atheist talked about his struggle with the need for sacrifice. He said, the idea that God needs to be appeased with blood is not beautiful. It's horrific. He went on to say, I would love to hear fewer Christian artists sing about a father murdering his son. If you can't think of anything to sing to God other than gratitude for taking your shame away through bloodshed, stop singing, he said. Or another person, William Paul Young, author of The Shack, in his latest book, Lies We Believe About God, said this. He said, who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser. Frankly, it is often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge. And rightfully so, he says, better know God at all than this one. Now, I get that our culture doesn't use sacrifice of blood and animals like ancient times. But contrary to the sentiment of these two people and others, the concept of sacrifice and atonement is absolutely necessary to deal with our sin. And I think when we explain it, every single one of us really understand that and get it. God can't just say, no big deal. I'll overlook that. You're good, so everybody get back in the pool and let's play. God can't do that because real forgiveness always requires real justice. And real justice always requires a price be paid. A price is always paid for sin. The offender or abuser pays a price when appropriately held to justice. The victim always pays a price at the time of the sin and pays another price when they give forgiveness. If you've experienced abuse or discrimination or assault or wrong, you don't respond by saying, I don't think there needs to be any justice or consequences. 
See, we all know there is no love without justice. The price of justice must be paid. There must be propitiation or atonement sacrifice made. The cross is Jesus showing us his love by not only forgiving our sins, but atoning for them by taking them the price of justice on himself in our stead. See, Jesus didn't just die for you. He died instead of you. This righteousness or justification in the Bible so easily gets twisted in our religious minds. great example of this is Martin Luther over 500 years ago. He was training to be a lawyer, and he was on his way home from law school, and he was almost struck by lightning, fearing for his life. He promised that he would become a monk if he would live. But as a monk and a priest, he had such fear of the wrath of God, it, it consumed him. He did everything within his power to placate his guilty conscience and try to be righteous before God. He was actually known to be the most dedicated of the monks to all the sacraments. He did acts of self-punishment on top of that, like going without sleep. He would not use a blanket on cold wintry nights to punish himself for his sins. He would do severe fasting. He did self-flagellation where he'd beat himself and whip himself in an attempt to atone for his sins, and it left him tormented. Luther was actually known for his, to, to confess his sins so thoroughly that he would stay up all night, causing the other priests to complain, saying, oh no, Luther's at it again, we're not going to get any sleep tonight. Later, reflecting on, his time, on this time in his life, Luther sounded similar to Paul in, his, uh, in how he had so much zeal to follow with God. He said, he said, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. Luther attempted to love God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength in his own efforts, but was miserably bound by the law. Luther was fixated on Paul's teaching on the righteousness of God. Romans 1 verse 17, For in his righteousness God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. And Luther hated this verse. He hated the righteousness of God phrase. Because if the perfect righteousness of God is the standard... He, as a sinful man, could not meet it, so he was hopelessly condemned. And this is what kept plunging Luther into all these strict practices, growing more and more discouraged and more and more desperate. Five years into this journey, he traveled to Rome thinking, well, if I could just see the Pope and the Cardinals and the priests and and be among the shrines in the Holy City, maybe it would calm his soul. Yet he was so severely disappointed. He visited the graves of saints and did ritualistic acts of penance and saw glaring inconsistency. He was shocked by the corruption and greed and immorality in the church's leadership. The Pope at that time was encouraging the sale of indulgences where people would pay in order to reduce their amount of time for punishment for their sins or they would pay to get, the, to get their dead loved ones to, out of purgatory because they were told they were screaming in pain, needing their family to pay for their deliverance out of purgatory to be free of their sins and make it to heaven. Luther went to Rome for answers, but all he found was disillusionment and despair. So Luther continued to study the Bible where one day he had an epiphany around the same verse that he hated, the righteous shall live by faith. And the epiphany was this, and it ended up changing everything. Luther, he struggled with this idea of righteousness because he was reading it from the Latin, where the words for justice and righteousness came from the Roman judicial system. And if you use those words in context, they referred to what needed to happen to make unrighteous people righteous. 
The church at the time understood this to mean that we needed to do sacraments and confession and baptism and penance and all these things and confirmation in order to be righteous, in order to be right in standing with God. However, as Luther was working on his doctoral studies and became a master of Greek, he read it in Greek. And in Greek, it doesn't mean make righteous, but rather to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. And this was the moment of epiphany for Luther. Paul was showing not how we need to make ourselves righteous, but how God freely gives his righteousness, his justification to people who don't have it by faith. Luther said this realization made him feel as though I was entirely born again and had entered paradise itself. An entirely new side of the scriptures opened itself to me. And I extolled my sweetest word with love as great as the loathing with which before I had hated the term the righteousness of God. His understanding led to the Reformation where the doctrine of justification is the watershed truth that separates true gospel from false gospel. John Calvin later reasserted this saying, justification is the hinge of the gospel. In other words, it is the tipping point. As we close, we want to celebrate communion and as we more fully remember and experience justification. In the Old Testament, once a year, each family would bring a perfect unblemished lamb. And they would lay it on the altar and they would place their hand on it and symbolically placing their sins upon that lamb. And in that moment, they were justified. The lamb was held responsible for their sins before God and they walked out free. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God, he was prophesying how Jesus would be that lamb, that sacrifice on the cross where the sins of the entire human race were laid on Jesus' head. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, All the prophets foresaw that on the cross Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful Father sent his only Son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul the oppressor. You will become David the adulterer. You will become Adam, that sinner which did, did eat of the apple in paradise. And we may add to that, Jesus became the husband who has neglected and abused his family, the person who has wrecked a marriage, the teen who lies to their parents, the proud, the selfish, the lazy, the terrorist. He took it all on himself. So as you take the cup, if you didn't receive this, go ahead and raise your hands. And say, if somebody has some extras out there, I, forget, I think I forgot between services, there's a basket here that may have some extras. Would you mind Chandler grabbing that and see if anybody has their hand up? As you take the cup and the bread in your hand, what you're actually doing today is you are placing your hand on Jesus' head. Remembering how Jesus takes your sin and he died in your stead so that you could be innocent of your sins. He justifies you, giving you his righteousness. And you now have a seat at the family table of the King of Kings. So let's uh, just take this together. So let's open it up and get our bread ready here. As we hold this bread, we recognize that Jesus came 
in our place. He took all of our sin, past, present, future, everything on himself. He paid the price so that you can be free. Go ahead and take it. And as we hold the juice, we know that he gave his very last ounce of life blood for us. He gave it all for us so that we could have it all. He not only forgives us, but he says to you, because of my blood, you have a seat at my table for eternity. And he invites us to be his sons and his daughters for eternity with all the rights and privileges. Would you take a juice? Lord, we worship you. Lord, we recognize as we speak these words that, that, that we don't always get this, that we still live life self-justifying way too much. But I pray today that your spirit would come to each and every one of us and help us receive more fully not just your forgiveness, but the fact that you've called us to your table, that you are with us, that we're with you, that there's always a place with you and we can be absolutely secure in that. So Lord, now as we turn our, our hearts toward you in singing this song, would you take these words and receive them as a heart of worship coming from us to you? And would you come and inhabit our praise? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me leave you with a blessing. Lord, I pray that this week that you would help us catch the times we are self-justifying, defensive, insecure. And would you allow us to turn to you and experience the full depth of how much you love us and how secure we are in you. And Lord, I pray that you'd also give each one of us the joy of seeing people around us who are starting to self-justify and feeling defensive and that you would let us speak into their lives in a way that they experience more and more of how greatly you love them and how secure they are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Have a great day. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.